it points forward to the sufferings of Jesus, just like the sufferings of the psalmists point forward to the sufferings of Jesus. And the sufferings of Jesus are worse than the sufferings of Job. Uh, but also that it overflows, just like the sufferings of Jesus overflow into the sufferings of Jesus' people. There's a sense in which Job goes through something which helps to prepare us for what we should expect uh, in Christ. So it's not just an old story with all its puzzles. It, it really is, in one sense, Jesus' story and our story. The book of Job has to be one of the most challenging books of the Bible, a book that often leaves us confused and maybe even a little discouraged. What did Job, a righteous man, do to deserve so much suffering? Why would God give Satan so much power over his life, and what did it all accomplish in the end? In short, why did God let Job suffer so deeply? And sometimes we go on to wonder, if God allowed that for Job, Will he allow that for me as well? In our interview today, I'm talking with Christopher Ash, writer in residence at Tyndall House in Cambridge and the author of Trusting God in the Darkness, a guide to understanding the book of Job. Let's get started. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway podcast. It's very good to be with you, Matt. So the book of Job, it's a, a pretty well-known, but arguably a pretty misunderstood book of the Bible. Uh, and, and the basic story is obviously very familiar. So we have this righteous man, Job, uh, and he's a man whom Satan targets you know, for destruction almost. It feels like he has just got this vendetta against him. And, and God perplexingly allows Satan to torment this poor man and his family, um, but in the midst of all that, Job never sins against God, and eventually there's this, there's this happy ending where God restores everything to him. But, but I think you would argue that there's a lot more to the story than kind of that basic storyline might suggest. Uh, and you've actually said that the book of Job is about more than just Job's personal suffering. So maybe to start, what do you mean by that? I... I'm sure that it points forward to the sufferings of Jesus, just like the sufferings of the psalmists point forward to the sufferings of Jesus. And the sufferings of Jesus are worse than the sufferings of Job. Uh, but also that it overflows, just like the sufferings of Jesus overflow into the sufferings of Jesus' people. There's a sense in which Job goes through something which helps to prepare us for what we should expect hmm. uh, in Christ. So it's not just an old story with all its puzzles. It, it really is, in one sense, Jesus' story and our story. Hmm. So you said you're sure that it does point forward to Jesus. So, so then maybe unpack that a little bit. What is it about the story itself or perhaps how the story is reference in the rest of scripture that leads you to believe that i i think it's the it, it's really em emphasized at the beginning three times that job is is a blameless man he he fears god he turns from evil he's upright now we get that in the first verse and god says it twice in the first two chapters so it's really strong 
and it's really really strong that he does not he's not being punished for for sins uh, in what he suffers and when you see somebody being suffering and it's not a punishment for their own sins you're thinking hey that's a story i've heard before mm. um so it's it sort of points forward that way i mean the it, as far as christians are concerned it, at the end of the letter of james james seems to imply that job is a a, a prophet who, who who's patient and and waits for the lord to show him um, kindness and mercy at the end. Uh, I think there are all sorts of lines we can draw mm. to Christ and then to us. Mm. So, so some maybe uh, kind of related to that question of what's the purpose of this book and how does it connect to future things. Um, some people would contend that the the book of Job, the story of Job, isn't really meant to be taken as history, but as rather some kind of you know, allegory or parable meant to teach us spiritual truths. So what do you say to that? Do you believe that's the case? I, I, I don't. I mean, it, it, it could be. I mean, a parable can be true. The parable of the Good Samaritan isn't history, but it's true mm. and it conveys truth. So there wouldn't be a problem if, if Job were a big parable. I just don't think it is. There's a reference to Job in Ezekiel, which seems to suggest that he's historical and there's no indication in it that it's anything other than historical although it's lost in the mists of very old old testament history and it's recorded in a very stylized way you know these these sequences of speeches job and then eliphaz job and then so far job and then bildad and so on i mean it's it's we don't normally have our conversations like that, even over Zoom. <laughs> That's right. And, and so there's something stylized about it. But I, I can't see any reason to think that it isn't historical. Mm. So one of the things that you've, you've already kind of referenced, but is perhaps one of the most shocking things about this story is, is kind of right at the beginning, the way it begins. So Job is living this blameless and upright life with his family, and the text, I think, literally says that he feared God and turned away from evil uh, in yep. his life. Uh, mm. We see him offering sacrifices on behalf of his children, so he's leading them uh, as their spiritual you know, head in the family. Uh, but then in, in what almost feels like a cruel twist, uh, God's response to that faithfulness is to intentionally bring Job to Satan's attention. Satan is uh, kind of just roaming around, it sounds like, and God actually says, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, and a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So I think uh, a question that probably many uh, Christians have wrestled with is, why does God do that? Yes, it's a really, really big question. And then it gets worse in the second round, of course. Um, I think the answer is a little bit like the beginning of 1 Peter, where Peter says that we, we've got trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith will redound to the glory of God. And I think that what's going on is not just a random conversation. I think that Satan is, in some strange sense, a member of God's cabinet. I mean, he has a responsibility to uh, try to see if people are genuine 
He does it out of malice. He's utterly evil. But nonetheless, in God's purposes, it needs to happen. So the conversation is really, is Job genuine? God says he's genuine. He really is. And Satan says, no, he's not. Hmm. He's, a, he's, a, he's a prosperity gospel person. He, he just does it when you give him the, 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 the good car or the private jet. That's the only reason he does it. And God says, no, he's genuine. And the only way to be sure is for him to be tested and deprived of the blessings. So it seems in some very deep way that the glory of God depends on there being a man walking the earth who worships him purely and simply because he is God. Hmm. That's so interesting. Uh, and, and that that idea of, uh, you, you use the term of the prosperity kind of gospel idea. I want to return to that in a minute because that is so foundational. Um, but you said something earlier about Satan kind of being part of, in some sense, part of God's cabinet almost. Uh, and that maybe connects to this uh, there's this phrase in there, the sons of God were kind of appearing before him, uh, presenting themselves to him. So what's going on with that? Who were they? And, and then what's Satan's role there? I think the text says that he was going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. Like, wh- What should we understand yes. about Satan and these other heavenly beings? Well, it, you meet these other beings, sons of God as they're called literally. Some translations say angels, which is probably right, but sons of God is the literal translation. You meet them in, um, is it 1 Kings 22 with Micaiah and the others? And I think the idea is that they are beings who are supernatural, superhuman, but sub-divine, what Paul will call the, the, the powers of the air. So they're, they're kind of up in the air above us as it were more powerful than us but they're not in god's heaven they're not they're not they're not gods um and i think there's this sense that we in western cultures find so difficult to grasp that there are supernatural powers whom god uses both good angels and bad angels and satan is the head of the bad angels um and God uses them in the government of the world in, in some way. And the Bible has a certain amount about that. And we all nod and say we believe in angels, but we don't really in our Western cultures. <laughs> but it's hard to make sense of this without that. And I think Satan is, uh, as it were, one of those angels, but an evil angel. He's a being who is, is more powerful than us, but who is emphatically not God or a God. Hmm. So then, as you said before, kind of God brings uh, Job to Satan's attention, almost feels like he's kind of challenging Satan, saying, hey, you know, here's an example of someone who is truly uh, loves me for who I am, not just for the blessings I've given him. Uh, But I wonder, I know one thing I've often thought about that challenge and even Satan's response is that there is a certain reasonableness to what Satan is saying. He, he kind of, you know, like you said, he, he, he sort of is advocating, he's saying that Job just believes in a prosperity gospel. And obviously, you know, uh, Christians kind of in our circles would be pretty quick to condemn the, the quote-unquote prosperity gospel. But I think even as we look at our own lives, we can see how easy it can be to feel like we're trusting God when life is good, 
But then when life gets hard, we can quickly feel tempted to blame God or to turn away from trusting and obeying him. So speak to that broader theme. Is the book of Job really trying to address that particular issue? I think that's part of it. I think it is it is true that the only test of whether I am really following Jesus because I'm a real disciple and I, I love God because God is God is when in some measure the blessings are taken away. That's the test. Otherwise, I could be just outwardly Christian. And it's sobering and, and glory comes to God when Christian people suffer and go on trusting Jesus. It's a bit like sometimes you hear stories, you hear people giving their sort of testimonies, and sometimes you have lovely stories about how God has healed them or given them a child or, you know, lovely things, and you rejoice with them. But actually, when you hear a story of someone who says, actually, it's still awful, Uh, we still haven't got a child or I still haven't got a job, but I'm trusting Jesus, there's something even more powerful about that mm. to the glory of God. So I think there's something very, very relevant for us today. Mm. Do you think it's the case that you know we can be uh, deceived into thinking that we're trusting God, uh, especially if we haven't suffered uh, severely like this? I possibly. I mean, we don't want to be um, paranoid about it. I mean, I've suffered very little by comparison with millions and millions of Christian believers in history. That would be true of many listening to this, I guess. Um, There'll be some who've suffered deeply, many of us who haven't. Uh, We don't want to be sort of endlessly worrying that that means we're not. Just Just because things are going well doesn't mean we're not genuine. But when the testing comes... It is that one Peter logic that that the testing will redound to the glory of God when we're seen to be genuine and we pray and trust that that, that we will be. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, so after Satan uh, essentially just kills all of Job's livestock, he kills his ten children, uh, and, and Job remains faithful, doesn't curse God in the midst of that terrible, t- terrible suffering, um, God then again, as you mentioned already, brings him up with Satan in the same way that he did before. And and ultimately, this time, he gives Satan permission to torment Job's own body, his physical body, with with painful sores. Uh, what are we to make of that, the fact that there is this second stage? It's almost as if uh, God, God feels like he's not done making his point. Yes, I mean, it's, it's frightening. It's really frightening, um, but I think I think the sense is that while I'm healthy, uh, you can take stuff away from outside me. <laughs> but while I'm healthy, um, I've still you you're still not sure. Mm. And I guess the, the the real conclusion is when everything is taken from the Lord Jesus. You watch him on the cross, everything but everything is taken from him. And then you know that he loves the Father. Mm. Mm. And that he'll do what needs, what, what, he'll drink the cup he's been given. Then you know for sure. Up until then you think he's genuine. Um, but there's always a possibility he might not be. And then you see him on the cross and you think, oh yes, 
who's genuine. You mentioned Jesus a couple times now, and I think uh, a dynamic that sometimes is at play, I, I know certainly for me and I think for other Christians, is you know we talk about Jesus suffering this unimaginable suffering that is uh, so far beyond even what Job suffered here. And yet it can be a little bit easy and maybe tempting to think, yeah, but that was Jesus. That, that was God in the flesh. And uh, that was something that he planned. He wanted to do that in a certain sense. He, that was his mission and his desire in concert with the Father and the Spirit. And so maybe in some ways it, it was easier for him than it would be for someone like Job. So, so I wonder, speak to the person listening right now who, is, who would say that they are struggling with a story like the story of Job because it seems to imply something about God's character, uh, maybe that he's cold or uncaring to the suffering of his people. People who, in Job's case, were were really trying to love him, trying to live for him. Um, like his suffering was real, and yet God seems to kind of treat it so casually. So, so yeah, speak to that concern that people might feel when they hear a story like this. I, I've always felt that the, the little passage in Job chapter 5... Um, from verse 7 through to verse 11 is a really helpful one for helping us understand this because James is writing to um, Christians who are clearly suffering a lot and he's encouraging them to be patient and to wait for the Lord who is at hand. Very soon he will come, the judge is at the door. And then he talks about the example of suffering and patience. And he speaks then of the steadfastness of Job. And he goes on to say, you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And I think if, you know, most of us, if somebody said the book of Job is about the compassion and mercy of God, (laughs) we would be a little surprised. Right. Exactly as you've just said, Matt. You know, it doesn't feel like it. But actually, it is the compassion and mercy of God that humbles Job, that takes him through that, that means by the end, he says, I, I'm, now my eye sees you. And the blessing at the end, in some wonderful way, is a deeper thing than anything that he could have had. And I suppose that's for Jesus for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And for us, um, our, our trials, you know, like 2 Corinthians, they're a light and momentary thing, even though at the time they can feel heavy and slow. Mm. Um, but, but the time will come when we see that God has been unfailingly kind. I think the book of Job is, is good because it, it just says to us, hang on a minute, the way I think God ought to run the world isn't the way that infinite goodness and wisdom and power does run the world, hmm. and maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. It's it's almost like there's, you know, it's it's a glimpse behind the curtain, so to speak, of the suffering that we experience in our lives. That there is more to the story that we just can't see yet, perhaps. Yeah. So, what should we make of Job's friends? That's another one of those issues that I think is sometimes maybe perplexing to to readers of the Book of Job. You know, we have these long dialogues or long conversations that are going back and forth through, you know, probably most of the book is 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 that. And I think uh, something I've wrestled with is sometimes 
things that they're saying actually feel like they're pretty good. It's pretty right. It makes sense. Uh, And yet we get a pretty strong condemnation of what they've said at the end. God kind of rebukes them. So, yeah, yeah, what's the main message that they're trying to communicate to Job, and why is it not correct? It's, It's... It's very puzzling because, as you rightly say, if you went, you know, if you were if you were going through a study Bible, you put ticks in the margin, a number of things. I mean, there's something that, that Eliphaz says in his first speech, I think, which Paul more or less quotes in one of his letters. Oh, interesting. You know, that, that God, God con- confutes the wise um, when they think they're being really clever. And so they say all sorts of things which are true. And I think what they get wrong is that they're not true for Job. So they assume if you're suffering, you must have sinned. And there's no place in their system for innocent suffering. So in the big story, there's no place in their system for the cross of Christ. Who that was innocent ever suffered, they say, at which the New Testament says there is one who was innocent, who suffered, and if he hadn't, there'd be no grace for us. So that's the really big thing they get wrong. There are other things they get wrong. There's not much waiting, not much praying and waiting. I don't think they'd ever have been at the prayer meeting. <laughs> the, 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 the kind of how long, O oh Lord, isn't, isn't part of their huh. way of relating to God because it's all pretty immediate, really. You, you do the right things, God will bless you pretty quickly. You do the wrong things, you'll get clobbered pretty quickly. Uh, so there's no place for innocent suffering and not much place for waiting. Um, and I think the reason the speeches are there is because they're so like what we instinctively say, yeah. we want to say. And so it's sort of a warning to us because you read it. I read it and I think, yeah, that, that seems sensible. And then at the end, God says, basically, God gives it a big thumbs down mm. in the last chapter. Mm. And so I'm thinking, hang on, I need to be a bit careful about this. Yeah. Well, I'm struck by something you just said that uh, much of what they said kind of in the abstract is maybe true and right and even biblical. Mm. We find other passages that would seem to say the same things, and yet uh, they weren't necessarily true of Job and his circumstances. So I I wonder, how how would you apply that in your own thinking about how you would, um, say, uh, offer counsel and interact with those who are suffering around you? I think it's it's a caution against assuming that things going well means somebody's walking with the Lord. And it's a caution against thinking that suffering means they must have sinned. They might. I mean, sometimes my suffering may be a consequence of my individual sin. Um, There are some fairly obvious ways that could be. That could be the case. But it doesn't necessarily. And I think it helps because often when people are really suffering, they wonder what they've done to deserve it. I've had people say to me, I don't know what I've done to deserve this. And this is Christian people who, who, who know in their heads that that's not how it works. But they feel that I must have done something. I must have taken a wrong turning somewhere. And just that sense that this is the expectation of a normal Christian life, that there will be uh, undeserved suffering. As, as part of it. So I think just that 
Of course we want to encourage one another to repent of any sin we're conscious of and to search our consciences. But um, the fact that we're suffering doesn't necessarily mean there's some sin we specially need to repent of. Mm. So I think it has huge pastoral implications. I mean, I've come across people who, who, who teach that Job, basically the comforters were right. Job deserved what he got and we need to learn not to be like Job. It seems to me they've turned the message of the book completely mm. on its head. Yeah, wow. So is that something you've ever personally struggled with, with the, the feeling in the midst of suffering that you must have done something to deserve this, You know that God must be upset for some reason? I'm not sure that I have. I may have done, but I vividly remember a good friend, same sort of age as me, saying that. We've been a Christian for, 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 for a long time and saying, I wonder what I've done to deserve this. Um, it mm. was someone who had some great suffering in their family. And it was, it was a great suffering. So what do you think that, what does that reveal about even the way that, that we as Christians can think about suffering and God's, God's disposition to us, if we feel like that? I mean, I suppose the, the right thing is we understand that the shadow of death, death is, is the consequence of sin. Death is God's judgment on human sin and the shadow of death. Every illness, a pandemic, everything of that kind is God's judgment on human sin. Not usually one for one, as it were, but um, it is. Romans 5 clearly teaches that, the second half of, of Romans 5. Um, so we get that right and we understand that that's why, you know, our bodies are dying because we are in a world under the judgment of God. But in Christ, there's no condemnation. We're not being punished because the punishment has all been paid mm. by the Lord Jesus. But I just think we need to say that to ourselves and to one another again and again. Mm. So in Job... 10, uh, we find what I think are some of the saddest words in all of the Bible, uh, words that, that sadly maybe some of our listeners have even resonated with uh, at certain times in their lives. So speaking to Job, uh, uh, sorry, speaking to God, Job says, why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I, would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. So I wonder if you could speak to a minute to the person who, uh, if they were being honest, talking with you directly right now, would say that they can resonate with those feelings. They can, mm. they have at times felt like, I wish I had not been born. Mm. Um, what would you say to that person? I suspect that's not that uncommon. And Job chapter three is very similar. I remember preaching on Job chapter 3, the church where I was a pastor. We didn't sing. It was so dark. We had, a, we mm. had the entire thing not singing. We, we, we had some of the story of William Cooper, the hymn writer and poet. Um, we looked at some of Jeremiah's laments. Um, I think we read Psalm 137. And, we, and it, was, it was a really helpful evening. It was a Sunday evening. I remember it well. And it was helpful because it said to people, actually, 
there are times in the Christian life when we will feel like this. Mm. Or, we, or we may well feel like this. And I think most I've felt like this. I've felt like that. I've thought, I, I, I wish I'd never been born. I wish I could just die. It's not the same as being suicidal. It's just a, a, a wishing. Mm. I wish, we wish I wasn't around. I suspect it's not that uncommon. But it's helpful to find it in Scripture on the lips of a man who is, oh, he, he, makes mis- he says wrong things. He has to repent of that at the end of the book. But uh, essentially God says, you know, this is my servant. He's a righteous man. Hmm. He's the one who can pray. Um, he's the one who's going to be blessed and honoured at the end. And uh, I just think he's deeply encouraging. Hmm. So I think some people who maybe have never struggled in that way to that that depth, uh, but then also even people who have struggled in that way have felt those feelings. Maybe the, it's it's easy to think, well, that's that's a sign of a lack of faith, of a lack of trusting God. If you feel that way, you are by definition not trusting God the way you should be. What would you say to that? Is that the case in every situation? I think it's very difficult. I mean, the danger is that we feel we must say the right thing. Mm. So everybody thinks everything's right with us. And there's an honesty here. I think part of the reason Job's speeches are so long is that we need, not just our thinking, but our feelings need to be drawn in to the drama. And it's not a light thing to say, I'm trusting God. It's, 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 it's best when it's said through our tears. Uh, and, and so I think we mustn't be afraid. I mean, we, we don't want to stop there. Job doesn't stop there. He has these wonderful um, rays of sunshine which break through, though mm. he slay me, I'll hope in him. Um, and, of course, the famous one in, in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. So you get these great shafts of light coming into the darkness. So you don't want to stop there and just think, okay, this is my settled position. I wish I was dead. But to think I'm going through the valley, it's like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death. And I may need to go through that more than once in different ways. But as I go through it, I I learn to not just to be reminded of, but to feel the gospel comfort. Mm. I think we help one another with that. I love it when Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, he, he hears a voice ahead of him, doesn't he, in the valley mm. singing the 23rd Psalm. And he thinks, oh, there's someone else here. And if God can be with them, maybe he can be with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the things that I find most interesting about Job's responses to his friends then, uh, as he is wrestling with this suffering and wrestling with their responses to his suffering is how often he he kind of jumps right over Satan's role in his suffering. I think he I don't even know if he mentions Satan at all. And he instead attributes all of his suffering directly to God. And one example is uh, Job 12, 7 to 10. And I wonder if you could just read that, those three ver- four verses for us and uh, and explain kind of what what the significance of that is. Uh, Job 12, 7 to 10 uh, but ask the beasts that one and yep, they will teach that's you right. yep the birds of the heavens they'll tell you or the bushes of the earth they'll teach you 
the fish of the sea will declare to you, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear taste test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the ages and understanding in length of days. He has no doubt that God has done it. I, He mentions Leviathan in chapter 3. And I think there's good reason to think that Leviathan, who fills chapter 41, is a, is a vivid way of describing Satan. Hmm. Um, so I, I think there's a hint that Job has some sense that there may be an evil supernatural power. And of course, he's right to say that God has done it. I think that's the question that people struggle with is when I'm suffering, uh, maybe on account of someone else's sin, that's often a cause of our suffering is mm-hmm. another human even has sinned against me in some significant way. Uh, we cannot always know how to think about God's relationship to mm-hmm. that suffering that we're experiencing. And we don't want to, we don't want to blame him for it. Uh, but, but Job kind of seems to blame God for his suffering in a sense, or at least, at least he isn't shy about attributing it ultimately to God. So how should we think about that, that issue? I think with great care. I mean, Job does, at the very end, he repents of some of the things he said. So it's not that he's suffering because he has sinned, uh, but, but in his suffering, he does sin in what he says. Mm. He says some wrong things, even though basically he's right. He's a, he's a righteous man. He's a believer. He, he has to repent. Uh, you know, when the Lord speaks to him at the end, he has to, uh, to, to say, look, I'm sorry, I, I, I said things I shouldn't have said. Um, and he does say some things he shouldn't have said. He says it from a righteous heart. Uh, and he's grappling, trying to understand what's going on. He believes that God is God. He believes if something happens, God must be behind it. He believes there's no autonomous power separate from God that can do anything. But he's right about all that. Uh, but we who've read, who've heard all of, we've heard the heavenly scenes in chapters one and two. Uh, we know more than Job knows. So it's easier for us, mm, yeah. When you've when you've tracked through those heaven scenes, yeah. Huh. Well, let's let's turn then to some of that sunshine that you mentioned. That it does peek out throughout the book at different points. And again, that most famous uh, line that is is probably familiar to most of our listeners, uh, coming in Job nineteen twenty five, where we encounter it's it's mysterious a little bit as well. Uh, I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And that's a truth that seems to give him hope. But what is he talking about? Who is this redeemer? I, I mean, Job nineteen is is it's it's an astonishing speech. He 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 laments that God is like an archer firing his arrows at him and attacking him. It's 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 like there's little Job in his one man tent, and the entire armed forces of the United States. Um, attack him. Mm. He's saying, you know, it's a bit of overkill here. Does it really <laughs> need to? Does it really need to happen or like that? <laughs> and and then and then he says he he has some understanding. You get a hint of it in chapter sixteen, and then again in here in chapter nineteen, he has some 
understanding that God being against him is not the whole story. Hmm. And that in some sense, ultimately, God will prove to be his redeemer and who will stand up for him and vindicate him, which is exactly what God does do at mm. the end of the book. So he's got that, that belief that ultimately God will justify him, will declare him to be righteous. And I think that's what lies behind it. Well, then maybe taking a, a big step back um, and thinking about application of this book, this incredible, beautiful book that we can study and and understand the literary uh, allusions and connections and the, the, the connection to the rest of Scripture and the story of Jesus. But ultimately, we also want to, to, to have it impact us in a way, help us view God and our suffering differently. So I wonder, could you speak to, to two sides of the coin? On the one hand, how can we use the story of Job as a lens through which to view our own suffering? But then on the other side, what are ways in which we shouldn't, you know, view our suffering through the lens of Job and, and apply it incorrectly? I think the way that we, we should, taking that first, is that Romans 8 verse 17, those who suffer with Christ will, will be glorified with him. And that core New Testament teaching we take up the cross, we, we, we walk with Jesus, we suffer with him. And Job helps us to understand that and to feel that hmm. undeserved suffering of Christian people. And to identify with the persecuted church as well. That's a really big way pastorally. And I, I, I read Job's sufferings and I think I shouldn't be surprised if in some way this is me. I mean, most of us, it's nowhere near as intense. I mean, Job is very, everything's big and intense. Most of us, it's not as grand. But if it's a little bit like that, it shouldn't surprise us. How it shouldn't be, I think the key thing is to remember the difference that the cross of Christ has made. And there's that wonderful description in the book of Revelation of, 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 of Satan being cast out of heaven, which I take it is describing the victory of the cross. And he doesn't now have the access that he did before the cross. He can still sort of call out, his he's still the accuser of the brethren, but he's the defeated accuser. You know, in the book of Job, he's under God's sovereignty. But after the cross of Christ, he's utterly defeated. He knows that his time is short uh, and, and we need to remember and take heart from the victory of mm. the cross. So it's not, you know, th th there's a sense in which Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked for permission to sift you. And it seems clear the permission was given to sift Peter and the disciples. And he did. Um, and then they c came through the sifting mm. by God's grace. And we should expect that in some way, that we'll be sifted. I wonder sometimes whether the COVID thing is its not quite like persecution, but whether there's a sifting going on in many of our churches and a sifting out of genuineness. Um, so that shouldn't surprise us. But never forget the victory of the cross. Mm, yeah. Well, what a great reminder to end on uh, talking about a difficult book, a, a, 
as you said before, a scary book, but yet ultimately a book that does point us to Christ, our hope, uh, the person that we ultimately trust in. Uh, Christopher, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us. Very good to be with you. That was Christopher Ash on Understanding Suffering, Job's and Our Own. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Trusting God in the Darkness, a guide to understanding the book of Job, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.